Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. There's a brain gym. So this is your brain gym. This is your chance to hear from three eloquent speakers about the big ideas in their sectors. We have Maggie Philbin, who will be known to many of you from Tomorrow's World, um, and to some of you from uh, Bango's The Theory. She's also the CEO of Teen Tech, which we will talk about shortly. Rachel Cowell is CEO of Dr. Tom, which is an online doctor service, if you like, that allows you not to have to go into a surgery and get, but you can get diagnosis and you can get scripts. And she will be talking about innovation in healthcare and how mobile can affect that. Um, and finally, we have Fran Perrin, who's founder and director of this, the Indigo Trust, which is looking at how innovation can help in disadvantaged communities. So we're looking for some lively introductions to their subjects. Each speaker will have about seven minutes each, after which, when they go over, a trap door will open in the floor for them to stop <laughs> speaking. And then after that, we'll have a Q&A session. So um, take notes, ask a lot of questions, and hopefully there'll be also some disagreement. That would be fun. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent, and, and I am going to ask you to tell me to stop so that I don't get carried away. Um, I know that most of you will know me from my wild and wonderful predictions about the future, and I will apologise now for the non-appearance of the electric, electric blanket that knew where your hot bits were. Um, but for the last few years, I've been working with young people because I was asked to do a conference, uh, and as you can imagine, because of the background in tomorrow's world, I frequently get asked to do things, just sort of questioning why we don't have more, more girls going into IT, why we don't have more female um, engineers. And on this particular occasion, I asked to go into a school uh, because I just wanted to hear firsthand from the kids themselves. And I was so shocked in terms of their images of what it was like to work in IT, how old-fashioned it was, and how, on the other hand, inspiring they were with their own ideas, that I set up something called Teen Tech with the help of a number of other people. And we now run this all over the UK in 12 different places. And the idea is we bring together 300 young people and loads of people with really inspiring, um, cutting-edge technology. At every, we did an event yesterday, actually, in Hampshire. So we had 140 scientists and engineers there, and it's absolutely awesome. So I thought I would just give you a little bit of information about how this generation is thinking and what we're missing out on. So um, that's what 300 teenagers looks like, and it's the only time that they ever sit um, and, and listen. And we, and we run through various things. We get them to sort of draw what they think people working in tech and engineering look like, and we run through a few questions on, on voting buttons. And this is about just getting a sense of how they're thinking. So this is what they think you look like. Um, and they know that's a stereotype, but they don't have fresh images to replace those very st stereotypical pictures with. Um, when we did the very first teen tech event, out of the 300 kids, eight drew a woman. Um, we have seen a steady improvement. So uh, yesterday in Basingstoke, uh, 28 out of the 300 drew a woman. But it still just shows, you know, how, how very sort of set in... Um, you know, these stereotypical images these young people are. And so my challenge to you is um, we need to inspire this generation to become creators, not just consumers of technology, and particularly the girls, because 
at the moment, they are not choosing um, sort of IT. They, they don't really see themselves in that role. And, and I count myself as a very poor parent uh, because my own daughter now works in the tech industry. Um, and it's despite me rather than because of me. Um, as parents, we're very poor at being able to inspire our own children and give them a sense of industries other than our own. Um, so these are just some of the, the voting um, button questions from we did an event in Wales two weeks ago. So this is very good. I don't know if we've got any Welsh speech in the audience, but, you know, always very helpful. Um, so this will come as no um, surprise. Um, and I guess this will come as no surprise that the teenagers really own technology. Um, but if you ask them where they're getting their ideas about careers, it is still their parents. So the people who they would not choose with, um, would not trust with choosing their next mobile phone, they do trust with giving them advice about careers. And as I've just said, we are inept at doing that. I know a lot about the broadcast industry. I do not want, know what's going on, even in, in, say, in, in Cisco, in any great detail. Um, we simply don't. The encouraging thing is that more and more young people are learning how to code. Um, and so this was in Swansea. Um, and, you know, you know, a really decent proportion. You know, this, this is growing. What we do at Teen Tech is to give them whole load of experiences about how, if they um, learn how to program, if they learn certain skills, how they might apply it so that they can visualize themselves in those industries. I mean, the publishing industry, if left to the parents, this is how parents see publishing, but obviously we know this is not what publishing is all about. So we work with a couple of the country's leading app designers. We run a design and app session. Um, this directly feeds into organizations like Apps for Good and Young Rewired States so that the young people and the teachers can take their enthusiasms forward. And we also show them other examples of digital industries, particularly ones which are run by sort of, say, two or three people. I mean, this is one not too far away. It's a digital um, promotion um, company for the, for the movie industry. Just three people in it, but the same kind of skills um, are needed. So they, the kids get hands-on with all sorts of technology, and, and it is just wonderful to see pennies dropping. I mean, I watched a boy doing this wonderful um, activity where they were able to hack electric guitars, and he stared into this electric guitar for so long, I thought there was something seriously wrong with him. And then he went, I'm going to make one of those. And you could see that was the moment when you realized that these things actually were built and made. Um, all sorts of cool things. Um, do look up Kate Stone. She's got a fantastic company called Navalia, and they do these printed electronics. Um, I won't talk too much about her now, but it, the idea is that it's hands-on, it's fun, and the kids start to see themselves in all of those roles. Because there are going to be lots of roles, as we know, to fill. Um, this staggered some teachers up in North Wales two weeks ago, that there are 900,000 vacancies, not jobs, vacancies. Um, so that's going to be companies really struggling, you know, to fill um, certain positions. And they are missing out because the ideas that these young people have, teenagers are experts on teenagers. They have really good ideas. Why more companies don't make more use of them, I really don't know. And these are a couple of ideas from uh, yesterday. Um, uh, Daisy won the ideas wall um, with, with this idea and then this one which I just think is absolutely awesome just a totally different way of thinking about shoes um, and becoming very useful and um, 
If you don't think that we can do very much in a day, um, this is the beginning of the day at Reading, when we, and then we repeat the question at the end on the voting buttons, and that's the end of the day, when they can actually start seeing themselves in those positions. And it is just so important. And please don't think that you leave this to organisations like Teen Tech or the government or education. Every single one of us has an obligation to make sure that young people understand the skills they need to thrive in your industry. And you really need those young people because I promise you they have got amazing ideas. Thank you. Okay, hi everyone. I'm the CEO of DrTom.com. Um, everyone probably remembers this. It uh, wasn't that long ago that it went uh, into administration and disappeared from our high street, replaced by this Amazon. I wonder how many people remember the last time they went and stood in the bank. I don't personally remember the last time I actually went to the bank. Who does that nowadays? Nowadays we just do this, we go online. Uh, it's transformed retail, it's transformed banking, it's transformed so many industries, and yet, where do you go even now, first, when you have a health concern? Well, almost everyone still does what they used to do when they wanted to do CD, or they used to do when they wanted to do some banking, which is you trot on physically down to your GP and you sit physically in the, off, in the, in the waiting room like these people are there. And it's, an interesting, it's interesting to ask yourself why, because very often you'll find if you go in and see your GP, in fact, you do not have a physical exam. All you do is talk to your GP. You ask your GP some questions, you get some answers, you maybe get referred somewhere. Uh, and actually, viewed in retrospect, the physical act of going and, and seeing your GP was totally unnecessary in the same way that we used to think you had to go to the bank to have those conversations, but now we realise that is totally unnecessary. Actually, a lot of people aren't doing that anymore, and, and probably the first thing you did wasn't you actually go to the GP. Probably before you did that, the first thing you did was look on the internet. And there's increasingly some, some credible sources of healthcare information like WebMD. But maybe you don't even go there. Increasingly, this is actually what you do. Uh, if you want a window into the souls of your neighbours' secret hopes and fears, this is a very interesting exercise to do. Write half a sentence and see what comes up. And by the way, this is a side point, but geo, Google geolocates. So this really is your neighbours' thoughts and feelings. Or in particular, this is around, around Marlebone, where I did this experiment. This is what people are thinking and feeling. Um, they're all extremely worried about their health. These are the real results that came up. So imagine for a minute, now you've got herpes. What are you doing? Okay, well, you're, you're, you're Googling herpes treatment. You spelt it a bit wrong, that's all right. And you're seeing a load of uh, advertisements come up there because, actually, you don't need to go to the doctor for this particular thing. And uh, please click on the third one down, which is Lloyd's Pharmacy. That's um, the service that I run. Don't go to any of our competitors. And, uh, and you'll see, you'll come through to this website, which is our, our um, healthcare website. What you'll then do is you'll fill in a, um, a questionnaire and the results of that questionnaire on your herpes will come through to one of these lovely people. They're all real doctors, uh, all, all, all lovely people. And they are physically right now sitting in Marlebone um, dealing with customers' uh, questionnaires. So that is, that is it in a nutshell, uh, the concept of the service. What then happens is your uh, medications get sent to you or you can pick them up at a Lloyd's Pharmacy. I promise I'm not trying to do a sales job. I just have to explain how the service works. So, so what are the benefits of this kind of, of revolution in healthcare? Well, I think it's probably fairly obvious. 
It's more comfortable, it feels more confidential. 85% of what we do is sexual health. Um, and I think if you think about it, it's kind of obvious why, because no one that I've ever met enjoys going to a sexual health clinic. If you can deal with that problem without talking face-to-face, -face, most people seem to actually find that an advantage rather than a disadvantage. Uh, it's clearly more accessible and more convenient. And in fact, this is, these are our sales. That's, that's a real chart. I haven't put the units on there because they won't let me, but um, that is a real chart of our sales growth. Um, and and this, this industry is on the brink of, um, of changing utterly, I believe, the, the, the face of healthcare in this country. We now have over 600,000 registered patients. Uh, Whenever I talk about what I do, um, there are always questions about pitfalls and challenges, and there's an awful lot of things that we need to think about with healthcare, because it's not like buying a, a music album. It is clearly much more fundamental, and we have to think about the risks. And when, when, when we think about how mobile healthcare can work and what we can, what we can make mobile, we really think about three um, different hurdles that it needs to overcome. Firstly, the condition needs to be extremely well understood. We are not treating cancer. It, we, are, we are not treating complicated diseases. It, that just doesn't work. It needs to be in, in person. The second thing is clearly it needs, it, it needs to not require a physical examination. So we're talking about things like needing malaria pills because you're traveling overseas, that kind of thing where actually if you know what you want, you know in advance that you do not need a physical examination. And finally, minimal potential for harm. We don't do painkillers. We don't do narcotics. We're never going to do painkillers or narcotics. And there's other examples of that. We need to think very carefully about the implications of specific services. I could say an awful lot under this heading, but I'll just raise one single example. We do a lot of HIV diagnosis. That is, we send you out an HIV kit, uh, HIV testing kit. Um, you sample yourself and then it go, uh, you put pop it back in the post and it goes off to the lab. We then tell you your diagnosis remotely and that carries with it certain psychological implications that we have to think through very carefully and make sure you're getting the support that you need. So briefly, and to conclude, touching on some wider systemic um, implications of this idea, clearly from the patient's perspective, it can be really helpful. What, what does it mean, though, for the thing that we um, all love so much that uh, you may recognize this picture from the Olympics? Maybe some of you were lucky enough to be there. Well, we hear two things about the NHS. One is how much we love it, and the other one is headlines like this about how much resource, cons resource pressure it's under, how there is no more money in the bank, everything's getting more expensive, population's getting older, we're all getting fatter and more diabetic. It, it's all getting more and more difficult every year, and George Osborne does not have any more money to give it. How on earth are we going to resolve that, that, that problem? I, I, I'm certainly not saying that mobile healthcare is the answer. I think it is definitely part of the answer, though. And uh, increasingly, we're seeing the NHS coming to us uh, and asking us if we can um, help them treat patients more cheaply and more efficiently. Because if you think back to that GP surgery, think about how many people didn't actually need to be there, because, but they were still taking up GP's time. So the idea is, can we, can we take out some of the demand from the system, not all of it, but can we just take out as much as we can and free up the NHS to focus its resources where you really do need um, physical treatment or it's much more complex? Um, and the example here is we're already working with various NHS organisations. One example is NHS Oxfordshire, and um, we're helping them diagnose... Um, uh, people from age 16 to 24 with chlamydia at half the cost um, of what other PCTs are doing. 
So I'll close there um, and just leave you to reflect in three years' time, in five years' time, in ten years' time, where do you think you're going to be going when you have a health concern? Um, so I'd like to take you on a bit of a journey from the Guildhall in London to Lagos, Nairobi and Pretoria. So a bit of a different angle on this. But first, some numbers. After Asia, Africa is the second largest mobile market in the world by connections and the fastest growing. In 2012, smartphones outsold computers by four to one in Africa. And Africans are spending on average 25% of monthly income on mobile services. That's compared to about 10% globally and 1.6 in the UK. So when you think about mobile innovation, I want you to think about Africa. Many people will hear those stats and think about a market opportunity, and that's exactly right, they should. People in African countries use internet for the same things that we do. They want to look up football results. They want celebrity gossip. They want to search for <coughs> porn. And we shouldn't always just think about people as very different in developing countries. It's the same motivations are here. But particularly when you're talking about intractable human and social problems like HIV AIDS or human rights development, it's easy for us to think we are going to import the solutions to developing countries, that the solutions will come from us. I think that's completely wrong. I think the best solutions come from communities themselves. The need in Africa is the most urgent, so the drive for innovation is often the greatest. When people can access, create, and share information, then we have a, a revolution, and uh, mobile technology is often the key. I want to start with a slightly unusual example, which is Kenyan dairy farmers. The dairy industry is vast in Kenya, but it's mainly about 1.6 million very small subsistence farms. And they, on average, produce about five litres of milk from their cows a day. But stats show that you need to be producing 15 litres of milk to get a family over the poverty line. So where do mobile phones come in? Well, even subsistence dairy farmers in Kenya are quite likely these days to have a basic <coughs> feature phone, something you can send text messages on. So iCow is a wonderful project that gets people the information they need to improve that milk yield. It gives advice throughout a cow's pregnancy, uh, helps farmers find the nearest vet or artificial insemination provider, and gives best practice, stores, breeding records, milk <coughs> yield. It has a proven impact on milk yield and farmer income, reduction in livestock illness, and increased sale prices for farmers selling their cows for the 17,000 farmers who already use it, and it's growing very fast. The Kenyan government partnered with iCow when they wanted to increase uptake of a, a crucial new vaccine for cattle. Where did it come from? It was a winner of an app competition from a Nairobi tech hub, and its inventor is a Kenyan female tech entrepreneur. Now I want to move to Pretoria. Project Capano is a support network for HIV plus <coughs> pregnant women. And it aims to give the women an SMS peer support network. Rachel talked about how we go to the internet to look for information on health. And that's what everyone wants to do. These women are in a very stigmatized community. And they're very scared of going to face-to-face -face support meetings because they don't want to reveal themselves as HIV plus. But we know that if we can reduce transmission rates of mother to child HIV AIDS 
we will help these women, their children, and save money for these countries. How does it work? Women who are diagnosed HIV plus during pregnancy are given a very cheap mobile phone. An SMS platform creates a group of messages and replies. It's basically an online discussion forum without the internet. Each group has a clinician in it and a local mentor who has themselves been diagnosed with HIV. Myths about transmission have been quashed, treatments explained, and the mothers report better access to treatment and feeling much less isolated. Both the ICANO project and Capano work on really basic phones via text message. I always advise donors and governments not to use smartphones in development projects because they're often unsustainable. If it, fixed, there's no one there to, if it breaks, there's no one there to fix it. So when I was shown a proposal for a BlackBerry app for the Nigerian constitution, I laughed. I said, this is an example of what we shouldn't be doing. And I was massively wrong, and I'm very proud to say how wrong I was. <laughs> the Nigerian constitution app does what it says on the tin. It turns out that if you're a lawyer or a human rights activist in Nigeria, you need the constitution, and it's very hard to access. But most Nigerian lawyers have smartphones. It's helpful for their work, and it's quite a status symbol. This app was developed by one coder, a Nigerian called Zibair Abouba. The value of the app was reinforced very early in 2012 when the BlackBerry version was downloaded 40,000 times in three days during the Occupy Nigeria protest. Human rights activists were using it to show the police, this is my right, I have a right to protest. Does this seem niche compared to something like Angry Birds? Well, this app has been downloaded over half a million times, and it's made it into the top 20 downloads for the Google Play Nigeria store. Since then, Zubi has developed an app for the new Zimbabwean constitution, and is planning to partner with other NGOs for constitution apps in Swaziland, Lesotho, Mozambique, Malawi, Zambia, Uganda, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. So it's beyond niche. Both ICAO and the Nigerian Constitution Projects came from tech hubs. Indigo Trust, which I run, funds 12 hubs in 11 different African countries. They range from technology hubs and business incubators to hack spaces and university tech labs. They're places where geeks, techies, coders, hackers and entrepreneurs can come together to work on problems, products and solutions that utilize ICT. Frequently, they offer training services, maybe in mobile development. They also offer business advice and mentorship, and crucially, access to fast internet and reliable electricity source, which is at a premium. More than anything, they're people, where, they're people coming together to collaborate on solutions for the problems that they feel are most pressing. I believe they offer a real, viable, and sustainable way of increasing capacity within Africa's booming tech space. Does this add up to a revolution for international development? Yes and no. You can't yet end a famine or end a civil war with a mobile phone, though phones have been known to start civil wars. But mobiles allow millions of people to create access and share information in new ways and at faster speeds. That information can transform lives and communities. So I want you to question your assumptions about where innovations come from. 
the next big thing, the game changer, may not come from London or San Francisco. It might come from Nairobi. Think about context and appropriate technology. Don't, as one NGO did, use an SMS project in a country where there's no written language. Don't use a smartphone app where no one can afford the data costs. Know that you need more than just the app. You need the knowledge behind it, the community to support it. But when you think about mobile innovation, think about Africa. speakers, I'm sure you agree that that's a lot of food for thought. Um, I'm going to be the, the doom and gloom merchant now after those really inspiring talks and, and I'll ask each of our three speakers very, very briefly just to talk about what you see as the major hurdle to achieving success in your particular area and what needs to be done to tackle it, but quite briefly because I'm very keen that other people get a chance to respond as well. So perhaps, Rachel, you could start. Yeah, um, the answer to that is very clear to me. It's um, regulation, which is both blocking and also patchy. Um, by blocking, I mean that it's been um, created by entrenched interests. It's different in every country. Some places it's the pharmacists, some places it's the doctors. It's always someone who is benefit. There's always someone benefiting from an inefficient system. And, uh, so, so, and they have had influence over many years on the regulations. The regulations in the UK are extremely amenable to what we do. It's a fantastic regulatory environment for what we do. That's why I think we've been lucky to exist here and why we're the global leader in what we do. That's not the case in other countries, which is the second point, which is that regulation is patchy. And it means that every, when we currently trade in three countries, we want to go to more, but every time we go to a new country, we have to change our business model in ways that do not make sense from the patient's perspective at all, but simply to get around whatever the quirks of regulation are in those countries. And do you think there's an issue that regulators understand sufficiently technology and innovation? Or do, do regulators have the kind of knowledge that they need to be able to regulate no. mobile and technology efficiently? No, not at all. So one of, the, one of the hurdles that we face is that in some countries there is regulation against what we're doing, which I would argue is to protect entrenched interests. Um, the other problem is that in many countries we would like to go into, there is no regulation at all in this area at all. And so that means we could go in there, there's only stopping us, but it's a huge commercial risk um, to invest in a country where the regulators have never even thought about this issue. And by the way, this is backing up the points about Africa. I'm not talking about developing countries, I'm talking about developed countries that have never thought about this. I'm talking about places like um, France and Spain. And Fran, what are the hurdles for you and for technological innovation that's emanating from Africa? People don't know how much they don't know. So whether that's NGOs and governments not understanding the potential and thinking these things are too risky or they're not appropriate for developing countries, uh, but it can also be people thinking, oh, this is the new sexy thing, so let's throw money at it and picking the wrong thing. iPads for Africa, something unsustainable. Um, a lot of international NGOs are trying to develop their own mobile platforms. Uh, they're using Western coders who don't understand the local problems and they're just wasting a lot of money. Okay. Maggie. I, um, I think one of the big problems for some of our young people is that we, we still have an education system which has got a model based on the Victorians, and we, we're struggling to let go of that model. And we've got a society where 
there was so much innovation happening. It's very fast moving. And we've got kids trying to follow um, lessons, which are following plans, which are say, they're just taught sometimes in, in an incredibly old fashioned way. And then we moan at the kids for being disruptive in class. It, it's been a bit of an eye opener to me when, with uh, at some of the events, um, they often send young, young people who perhaps are on the cusp of becoming completely disaffected and are amazed at how engaged those young people become when they can suddenly see a point to what they're, they're doing. So, so, yeah, so I think using it's technology as a teaching tool rather than a subject that you teach? Yes, yeah, and, and it's also really interesting when you watch the companies, because companies are often, you know, the received information is kids don't have the right skills, they're not really interested, no one's doing, and we haven't got enough people doing physics and maths. And then when they meet the, the, the kids, they are astounded by their ability and how quickly, in a 30-minute session, they pick technology up. And, you, and you, you watch the teachers, who then become slack-jawed at someone who is probably constantly being, I'm sure, a total nightmare in school, absolutely absorbed in, in what, they're, what they're doing. Um, and it, it, it's fantastic to watch, but you kind of wish that somehow we just took a, a, a rather bolder view of what we were doing in schools. So maybe that's a project for someone out there. Are there questions from the audience? Have you put up your hand? Hi, uh, my name is Tamara from Mugdice Media. Um, one of the interesting things that I saw was the amount of people that are being self-taught uh, in the schools, you know, technology and, and coding with your diagram that you had. Um, do you think that this model can be applied, you know, the self-teaching model is something that we need to be a lot more aware of, especially with younger kids. I mean, I've got a daughter who's just over a year old. She knows how to operate an iPad. <laughs> so, um, you know, so I, I think one of the key things is, is do, we, do we need to focus more on, you know, you mentioned the education system, on, on the self-teaching element. We've got, you know, YouTube videos, we've got everything, tutorials, everything that we could want online. Yeah, I, 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 I think you've got a very good point there. And I think also perhaps thinking about collaborative learning um, because I can understand how scary it can be for a teacher when you've got a class full of kids who probably know far more than you do. And so why not all learn at the same time? Why put yourself in the position of being the expert when you could put yourself in the position of being a member of a, um, a team? And self-teaching is something that's advocated quite a lot, isn't it, in Africa because of sort of logistical issues. So it's, it's a necessity. <coughs> if you're a computer programmer in Liberia, you're likely to be self-taught because nobody's teaching it. Uh, and there are a whole load of programs now which are great for teaching yourself. In the UK as well, Code Academy is worth checking mm. out. Um, I think it also goes towards the need to make sure there are good quality information sources out there, whether it's about health information or teaching yourself to code. We use a project called Translators Without Borders, which is making sure that the crucial basic health information about TB or malaria is translated into Swahili for Wikipedia, because Wikipedia doesn't have enough in African languages and people are looking for that information they need to know. Because that raises an interesting question, doesn't it, around trustworthiness? Because if we are going to go to the self-teaching model or where we start diagnosing all of our um, illnesses, and I would have been fascinated to do that in this room so we could have worked out what everyone was quickly Googling. Um, mm. You're very welcome to try the rash on my arm. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, maybe in the break we could do that. Um, how, how do 
we get to that point where we know who to trust and who are the right providers of that kind of information, particularly on health? Yeah, it's very, it's, that's a very good question. I think um, there's, a lot, there's a lot of rubbish out there on the internet. There's an awful lot of terrible health advice. There's dodgy websites um, out there as well. So we, we do every, everything we can to put as many kind of badges of all the regulation that we've gone through on our website. The problem is people don't know how to distinguish. No, for what it's worth, it's the Quick Care Quality Commission that is the key regulator. Who's heard of them? Mm. No one, right? Um, so that is that is a, a is a problem. It would be um, very helpful if there was some kind of quality mark um, that people actually knew what it was. This it wouldn't require more bureaucracy because the, the regulation the regulators already exist. Mm. The problem is that no one knows what their name is um, yeah. except for except for us. Um, so I think that's one thing. I, I, I'm really interested in the, in the self-taught um, point. I, I think that applies just as much in London as it does um, in Africa. And I'm reflecting on um, my staff and how many of them are self-taught. It's probably between about a third and a half who are, have self-taught them every, themselves everything that they're currently doing today as their, as their full-time job. And I'm thinking about people who work with paid search, people who do our... Um, uh, search engine optimization, anyone, anything to do with IT, they've all been self-taught. Yeah, it's just a question on the medical advice. Um, quite often, uh, people, you go to a doctor, he's got your case notes. So going in maybe to uh, your pharmacy with a, with a problem, you wouldn't have that information. Mm. Um, I'm just wondering how you get around this. Yeah, really interesting question. There's a few things um, on that. One, we would love um, to be able to get access to that. Um, and so I'm, um, I work with the NHS occasionally with their um, informatics people towards that. It's just, the NHS is such an enormous beast, it's going to take years before that's technically possible, but we would love to do it. Many of our patients actually really like the idea that things are separate. Um, this kind of always surprises me, but there are, um, we, we often get sometimes a patient, the same patient will ask us more than once, are you sure you're not going to tell my GP? Are you sure you're not going to tell my GP? Because they don't, someone who's from a small village, maybe they know their GP um, through some other way as well, and they, they actually do not want their GP to know about the thing that they're coming to us uh, about. Um, we, give, we, we basically put that choice um, to the patient, whether or not we pass what we do back to the GP. We're perfectly willing to do so, but, but we ask the um, patient whether they want us to or not. How we get the information about the patient from the GP, that all goes in the design of the questionnaire. And the, our, our um, doctors who design the questionnaires make sure they're asking every question that they would need to ask. And of course, if you were traveling and you had to go to a, a, a doctor who you'd never seen before about something, then that's exactly what would happen. You would go into the doctor, you'd never seen them before, and they would, uh, they would ask you all the relevant questions uh, if they didn't have access to your case notes. We do the same thing. I think we've got probably time for just one more question. Um. What are doctors for? So looking, looking forward 10 years' time, what, what will doctors be for? Very interesting. Um, I, think people go to, I think people go to doctors for very different reasons. There are some people who think about their doctors, some patients think about their doctors very transactionally. Um, they're like a, a gateway to a, a prescription. They're like a, a, you know, if they could make a doctor into a vending machine where they just pushed in um, a code and it spat out a medication, they'd be perfectly happy with that. And there's you know, probably some people in this room who would, who would think about a doctor in that way. 
other people think about a doctor in a very different way. They think about continuity of care, they think about getting to know the family over a long period of time, getting to know many people in the family, they think about having a very personal relationship. Um, a lot of people go to the doctor, a lot of older people go to the doctor because they're lonely. We, we, what we do, and what, or what mobile, mobile health, I think is not going to be able to address the needs of those patients. Um, so that's why I'd always emphasize that I think mobile healthcare is not going to be the future of healthcare, it's going to be part of the future of healthcare. Se if we can segment those, those needs of patients and then give them the choice. If they want the personal relationship, it, that should be there. And if they want the transactional vending machine relationship, that should be part of the, the, the menu. If I wanted to add something. Yeah, just to follow up on that, I think there's sometimes a temptation to say if a mobile service can't do everything, then it's no use, and we just know that's not true. If you're talking about vaccinations for children in an African country, the internet can't do that. No one's going to pretend that it can do that. But if you are in a very rural area and a vaccination means a 20-mile walk to a clinic, not knowing what day the health worker will be there with vaccines, then the internet becomes your friend. And we've seen studies where simple SMS programs which say today or tomorrow more likely the health worker is going to be at the clinic and we have a stock of vaccines then it becomes worth the person walking 20 miles to get that vaccine it's as you say it's part of the solution it's not the whole future very sadly we're going to have to wrap up i know that probably there are many more questions and i think this i could certainly have these conversations for um hours um looking into the future and getting very excited about the potential but julia's giving me the look um, so uh, I have to wrap up. I'd really like to thank our three br big ideas, bright idea speakers, Maggie, Fran, Rachel, and thank you for being a very attentive audience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.